Welcome to Aleph, Traditional Wisdom in Review. Aleph is a digital media collective dedicated to publishing philosophically engaged content which brings together perspectives from both classical Islamic sources and the Western intellectual tradition. Our hope is to go beyond a model of mere dialogue and develop an approach focused on synthesis, the discovery of new relations, and the creation of points of integration. This podcast is part of a series where we interview the authors of the articles we publish to take a deeper dive into some of the information and topics they explored in their writing. Today, I am joined by author Yusuf Askar to discuss his recent article on Arabic logic. Yusuf's article provides a broad overview of the development of Arabic logic and many of the key figures in this tradition. Yusuf's article charts the Greek origins of Arabic logic and contextualizes this science within the broader Islamic intellectual framework. Yusuf is a current student at the Cambridge Muslim College, where he's pursuing a degree in Islamic studies. Now here's our conversation. All right, welcome and thanks for tuning in. I'm here with Yusuf, who just published an article on Aleph, The Forgotten Legacy, Logic and Rational Inquiry in the Classical Islamic World. So me and Yusuf are going to chat here a bit about his article, explore some of these topics, really kind of dive into this idea of Islamic logic and its, uh, its importance even for our, our current era. So hi, Yusuf. Happy to be chatting with you. How's it going, Jared? Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, the first thing I'm wondering is uh, why this topic? What was the inspiration behind uh, choosing to write on Islamic logic and publish uh, an article that really resonated with a lot of people. What was the vision behind this? Sure. Just a bit of background on the on the subject. I recently started a BA at the Cambridge Muslim College uh, in Islamic Studies, a three-year program. And one of the core modules on that is one in Arabic logic. And just studying this subject over the past few months really made me realize the importance and the centrality that it has to the Islamic intellectual tradition. Indeed, it is one of the uh, instrumental sciences, what we call in Arabic, with which we can understand the primary sciences. So logic is the ground upon which we can study the other sciences, like your law, like your creed and everything like that. So for me, uh, what I was really tr- setting out to do in, in this article, and indeed it's uh, in the future articles, it's, it'll be a series of articles on this issue. Uh, what I was setting out to do was really introduce the subject of logic into the mainstream discourse because it's a subject that, of course, it is it is taken seriously and it is studied very very deeply, very thoroughly, but only in academic circles or in traditional Islamic seminaries. And I and I thought that we need to branch out a little bit further into the mainstream discourse and really introduce logic to those who might not necessarily have had any exposure to it, help them get a good understanding, and even if it's just an appreciation of the subject and the amount of depth and uh, you know, importance that it has, both in the Islamic tradition and as well in the Western tradition. You'd be surprised as to how much interplay there is between the two traditions when it comes to studying logic. Right, yeah, I think that's a, that's a, definitely an important point of your article and what, what it's going to continue to build on as you write the upcoming articles in your series. So I think you're definitely hitting on, on something important here, looking at sort of the I don't want to say obscurity exactly, but uh, it's, it is true that there isn't this kind of wider knowledge or consciousness of Islamic logic, Arabic logic on a popular level. It is something that is kind of kept in the, the seminaries or, or academic halls. And, and uh, even there, it seems to have been uh, 
unduly neglected at times. So what I'd love to hear from you is, is what, what's kind of the origin of Arabic logic? Where, where did this science come from? Uh, how did it get such an important place within Islamic intellectual life? What was, what was the development here? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question. And because that's basically the, the question I'm setting out to answer right in the beginning of the article. I'm sort of setting the scene historically here. Where it all kicks off, so to speak, is during the Abbasid Caliphate. We're talking around 750 CE, where the Khalifa at the time, his name is Al-Mansur, he establishes Baghdad as the capital of the Islamic Empire. Obviously, uh, under the Umayyads, it was Damascus, but when the Abbasids take over, it goes from Damascus to Baghdad. And there in Baghdad, he's inaugurating a center of scholarship. And he invites all these scholars from all these different places, you know, from Persia, from China, from India, especially Persia. Persia is a very strong influence there and uh, for historical, for political reasons also. But that's a different discussion entirely. We don't want to get into that too much. And then the movement gets great momentum under the Khalif Harun al-Rashid. And Harun al-Rashid is a very interesting figure. He had a really deep love and appreciation for education, for knowledge, the importance of knowledge, and indeed to the extent that social standing under his uh, caliphate in Abbasid society was defined by um, having a prominent role in academia or anything to do with education in general, whether it was being a teacher, being an academic, or even sponsoring academic institutions like universities, etc., so the movement really starts off there and we see a lot of texts being translated. The translation is a big thing. It really defines the whole movement. It's at the center of this movement. So we see a lot of texts being translated to different subjects like maths and medicine and astronomy. Um, so many of the sciences was initially that were at the forefront of this movement. But then later on, as we go on through time, it extends more broadly to include other disciplines like philosophy. And this is where logic comes into the picture. A lot of the texts were translated to Arabic from a lot of different languages, but the main ones we're concerned with here are Greek and Syriac. It's more so Greek because this is really the center of the interplay that we're looking at here between the Arabic and Greek traditions in the context of logic. Right. Yeah. And I think that's this translation movement, I, I think, is, is really such a historically significant moment when this Greek heritage, this Greek knowledge gets brought up into Islamic civilization uh, in its in its early phase and is really able to flourish and continue its its developmental trajectory that then will eventually head head on to the, the Western world uh, where it will be rediscovered via uh, the Islamic civilization that cared for this tradition. So what I'd love to, to chat about next is uh, some of these important figures uh, in the development of this logic tradition within the Islamic world. Some of these great minds, these philosophers who penned these, these important works that made Arabic logic such a significant tradition. Yeah, excellent question. That was the favorite part of the article for me. This was the most fun to write about. And our first thinker who really kicks off the journey, so to speak, is a man called Al-Kindi. His full name is Ya'qub ibn Ishaq Al-Kindi. And he's often described as being the one to really introduce the Muslim world, the Islamic world, to Aristotelian philosophy and Aristotle's philosophical corpus. And he's really advocating for studying revelation from a more philosophical lens. And I just want to clarify something, here, especially on that point. Even though he argues for this, to study revelation from a philosophical lens, he sees philosophy, of course, which includes logic, he sees philosophy as being more sort of subordinate to religious creed and religious uh, belief, in that it's, it's a sort of a system or aid to theology, so to speak. So he thinks that philosophy is a tool with which we can aid our religious belief. And in the next stage of the journey, we meet a man who's named Al-Farabi. 
Al-Farabi goes a step further. He says, no, that's not the case. And Al-Farabi's faith is not to be taken lightly. His religious convictions were very strong, but he was of the opinion that logic and philosophy should be integral, just as you know, all the other religious sciences like our law and our creed, etc. And Ibn Sina, because Ibn Sina really changed the whole dynamic, like totally, because what we have here is we have Al-Kindi and Al-Farabi who are setting the foundations and introducing the Muslim world to philosophy. And then Ibn Sina just comes and flips the whole discussion on its head. Because Ibn Sina, who the West knows as Avicenna, of course, he wasn't a fan of doing logic specifically based on the Aristotelian corpus. He felt that uh, a new approach was required and the Aristotelian corpus shouldn't be taken as gospel, so to speak. So he places a far greater emphasis on this approach called tahqiq, which is verification. It's a more thorough engagement with the different positions in logic and philosophy in trying to find the true positions and gaining cl- get greater clarity in one's arguments, so to speak. And this really set the stage for then the later developments of uh, Arabic logic. Because at this time, in the early period, Arabic logic isn't really a field in and of itself. It's sort of taking cues, so to speak, and, and heavy influence from the Aristotelian corpus. And it does so later on because it's the, it's the Aristotelian corpus that sort of plants the seeds for the later, later uh, developments of Arabic logic. But where it really sort of starts to come into his own is after Ibn Sina. And a lot of the texts that were written later on, the texts that were famously used in the Islamic seminaries in the Madrasa systems, they cite Ibn Sina and his framework as the point of departure. It was very, it was very important to clarify this. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Seeing how how this Greek tradition was taken up in the Islamic world and used as as sort of its own instrumental science, but then as it became more integrated and more of these Islamic thinkers engaged with it, it, it really branched off into its own sort of uniquely Islamic discipline of, of logic, which is is just fascinating. So, what what I'd like to touch on now is. Why is this science uh, so important? How, how does it sort of function within the greater Islamic uh, intellectual context? And how does it relate to, to some of these other important sciences, philosophy, theology, exegesis? Well, there's two things I, wanna, I want to touch on here in regards to that question. One is how it influenced the madrasa system in following the later developments after Ibn Sina's time. And two... Um, I would argue that the centrality of logic finds its roots in the Qur'an itself. And that's very, very important because the Qur'an itself appeals to human rational, human rationale and human reasoning and implores man to use these faculties, which are described as divine gifts, essentially. And that's, that's really important. There's a couple of verses that I cite in the article. Uh, one example is that the authority of reason is hev- heavily emphasized and one, uh, one verses, chapter 8, verse 22, often cites that the worst creatures in the eyes of God are those who refuse to use reason. They're described as being willfully deaf and dumb. And essentially, that to be characterized as a human being, to be defined as a human being, the central feature here is that of reasoning, is that of rationale. It's what distinguishes man from the rest of creation, so to speak. And the second point is the importance of logic in the Islamic educational system, in the madrasa system. And, you know, there is an emphasis on logic. It is part of the curriculum and it is studied very thoroughly and it does incorporate the classical texts. But you find that things like uh, the science of hadith, Quranic exegesis and law, these get the main focus, the main priority. And that's understandable at the end of the day. You know, these are 
our primary sciences, but we can't engage in these sciences properly and you know produce the amount of quality research that we'd like to if we don't have a grounding in logic. And I cannot emphasize that enough. With logic, we're able to engage in the classical texts of not only the primary sciences, but the other instrumental sciences as well, like dialectical inquiry. In Arabic, we call this adab al-bahth al-manadara, the science of dialectical inquiry, or usul al-fiqh, which translates to legal hermeneutics. And with, with, this, with this foundation then that the logic and by extension the other instrumental sciences lay down, then we can engage in, you know, we can engage in theological debates, um, come up with it was a really, you know, rigorous, sophisticated arguments to answer really profound questions, you know, the nature of reality, the existence of God, all these kind of things. And then we can uh, develop juristic methods to answer important questions of law and legal theory in the place of law and society, these, these kind of things. It gives you that really strong foundation then, with which you can really narrow down and clarify your primary concepts, your main arguments and what the kind of points you really want to get across. Because that's, that's the main problem here. And there's, the, there's, a really, there's a really exciting book I want to recommend. It's called Socratic Logic, a logic using Socratic method, Platonic questions and Aristotelian principles written by Peter Kreeft. Very, very good book. Provides a very thorough introduction to the study of logic and really tells you about what it's all about, why it's important, and then how to do it, you know, um, if I could sum it up in, in, in a sentence or two. And in this book, he makes a really important point in his chapter on contradictions and conversions. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. It'll probably come up in a future article that I put out. But in this book, he makes a really important point that the reason why like debates and exchanges and arguments, they don't get resolved is because essentially we don't know what we're talking about. We don't know what is contradicting what. We don't know what our terms are. We can't divide our terms. We don't know what our primary concepts are. And if we don't have a foundation to answer all these questions and to really center the discussion we're not going to get anywhere and that's why you'll find a lot of discourse tends to go haywire you know in various fields and from my experience especially um where i live and the kind of discourse that i'm i'm exposed to in my local communities specifically in the context of, of islamic education it's absolutely insane it's absolutely insane there's absolutely no appreciation at all for the science of logic because if there was you know we wouldn't be asking the same questions again and again yeah, certainly. I mean, it's such a foundational method and science that uh, allows for, as you were saying, inquiry in all sorts of various fields. But it needs it needs to be there for for that inquiry to be as fruitful as it can be. So, so you've already somewhat touched on this, but uh, if you have any any further thoughts of what specifically logic is able to address in our contemporary context or or why is it so needed specifically right now i'd, I'd, I'd love to to hear some of your opinions firstly first i want to start off with the definition of logic specifically in the islamic context in the islamic context a lot of the manuals they will define logic as the science which prevents man from falling into fallacious thinking that is really the main goal of logic that's what we're setting out to do when when we study logic and it's really important for two things what uh one the interplay between the islamic and greek traditions has always been there you know it's ancient essentially in terms of their interactions and the extent of interplay you'd be surprised you know if you study logic at a fairly deep level you'd be surprised the amount of interplay there is between the two traditions i mean if you read an arabic text of logic and then you know read something like socratic logic peter Kreef's socratic logic like i just mentioned earlier there is quote you will find pretty much 
the same content in terms of logical methods and forms and modes of reasoning. Um, so that's one reason. Another reason is, you know, coming back to my previous point, I mentioned how logic is really central to engaging with the classical texts of the other religious sciences, whether it's primary or instrumental. But not only that, logic is central to having success in popular discourse, whether it's on the academic front or on, you know, the general popular discourse on a mainstream level, so to speak. And I'll give you a few examples. Things like, you know, there's, there's all these um, popular notions about identity politics, for example, you know, notions of culture, notions of ethnicity, you know, um, belonging and all these things. And, uh, you know, if I, if I were to cite a specific example, let's take the example of liberalism. I mean, big, big topic, you know, big concept. You know, some people would argue that liberalism is a good thing. You know, they'll have a lot of good things to say about it. They'll offer high praise for it, but other, you know, others will, won't be so favorable towards it. They might argue that, you know, it, it, it has a very shady moral foundation, if it even has a moral foundation, philosophically speaking. Of course, these are, these are just general points to sort of contextualize the example here. I don't want to go into too much detail, but the wider point I'm trying to make is that the validity of such claims is dependent on how we define liberalism. So what logic does, it helps us come to terms. It's helping us come to concepts and how we define those concepts. Once we can do that, we can have a fruitful discussion and engaging in, in beneficial discourse. Otherwise, most of the time, we're just trying to work out, you know, what our definitions are, what our terms are, what we're even talking about. You know, most of the problems nowadays in popular discourse, whether it's in the academic sphere or in the general sphere of discourse, is that we don't even know what we're talking about. I keep repeating myself on this point, but I, I really cannot emphasize it enough. You know, people want to talk about, oh, it's common sense and, and things like that. Well, you'd be surprised at the lack of, the lack thereof <laughs> in, a lot of dis in a lot of discussions. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's so crucial. Just uh, being able to, to really consciously grapple with these things and ensure our, our thinking is well-grounded and being able to ex examine uh, presuppositions and uh, uh, all sorts of baggage that is just kind of natural when engaging in, in rhetoric. But without logic there to, to guide that rhetoric, it becomes very chaotic very quickly. And that's certainly certainly what we see uh, in, in many spheres in, in contemporary times. So to close out here, uh, I'd, I'd love if you could say where you're going to be going next with this series on logic, what we could look forward to hearing from you further uh, when you are able to get to the next piece in this in this series. I'm sort of taking a more of a cumulative angle, so to speak, in the series. So just a point on the, you know, general direction of the series where it's going so in the first piece i set out what it's all about why it's important and you know its development as a science will kick off historically speaking uh the next piece will look at how traditional muslim scholars reacted uh to this science and now obviously at this point the tradition of arabic logic as an independent science is you know fully established we have popular texts in the seminaries it's being taught as a as a science like any other science and of course, this sparked a bit of controversy amongst the, the traditional Muslim scholars. And we have a real divide as to the permissibility of studying Arabic logic. Some were arguing in favor for it, some were heavily opposed to it. And the reasons why I will be touching on in my next piece and arguing whether or not they actually have any basis to them and whether or not the Islamic tradition actually permits 
the study of logic. I can assure you that based on uh, how passionately I've been speaking about it, my answer is, is you know, is kind of clear already. But it's good to sort of set out both sides of the debate. And, you know, we have to be honest in these kind of discussions if we're going to engage in meaningful discourse, you know, to, to, to reiterate my previous point. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Yusuf, uh, thank you for, for coming on to talk about your article and, and share your expertise and uh, your, your time. This, this has been wonderful. So if you haven't read Yusuf's article yet, it is uh, up on our, our Medium page and you can get to there quite easily through any of our, our social media or just uh, alifreview.com has all of our links. So uh, do check it out. Give it a read uh, if you haven't already. You have been listening to a conversation on Arabic logic with Yusuf Askar. This podcast was produced by Elif Traditional Wisdom in Review. Thank you for listening.